the book of Mark chapter 1. We are going to be continuing in verse 9 this morning. Last week as we looked at the opening to the gospel according to Mark, we were introduced to the ministry of John the Baptist. We saw how John the Baptist came as a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. We saw John baptized with a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And this morning, as we come to verse 9, we're going to transition from the ministry of John to the ministry of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, the Bible says, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Let us pray and then we will dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for this time and opportunity to come and worship the Holy God, Lord. I pray that as we dive into your text this morning that you would give me clarity of speech, that you would help me to be concise with my words. Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross, that you would make Jesus big, that through the preaching of your word that you would be glorified, Lord. Lord, I pray for those here this morning that you would prepare their hearts, that you would remove all distractions, that you would minister to us this morning through your preach word, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would just be here with us, Lord, that you would meet with us in a great and mighty way. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Truth be told, I'm not really a big TV person. I don't, I don't watch a whole lot of TV or a whole lot of movies, but having a two-year-old son, every once in a while, I do get stuck watching shows that he likes to watch. Again, being a two-year-old boy, he's at the stage in his life now where he likes scary things. He likes dinosaurs, and he likes lions and tigers. Basically, he likes anything that goes roar, and he loves to roar. So if he comes up to you and he roars at you, I, I apologize in advance. It's just this this thing he's got going on right now. And so sometimes when I'm at home with Nehemiah, we'll turn on Disney Plus and we'll look for some movies to watch. And one movie that he took a particular liking to was Monsters, Inc. Monsters, Inc. is a movie that came out when I was a child. And in Monsters, Inc., you, there is these two monsters that are best friends. And these monsters have a job of going and scaring children. And so when they scare these children, the screams from the children basically provide electricity for their city there. Coming out in 2001, Monsters, Inc. pretty quickly became a fan favorite of those that watch Disney movies. The plot is pretty good, and the main characters, Mike and Sully, the two best friends in Monsters, Inc., are pretty easy to like. But 12 years after Monsters, Inc. released, Monsters University came out. Monsters University, unlike most second movies, is not a sequel to Monsters, Inc., but rather it's a prequel. In Monsters University, we are 
introduced to the beginning of Mike and Sully's friendship in college. We see they meet in college, and at first they're really not the best of friends. But over time, they grow together, and we see how their friendship blossomed, then moving into Monsters, Inc. Through this prequel, the characters that we had known and loved for 12 years became even more relatable. Through this prequel, these characters, their story, their friendship became even more, even more powerful as we got a glimpse into the beginning of where this friendship started at. And so this morning, as we open up Mark's gospel, we find the prequel of Jesus's public ministry. Before Jesus came and turned water into wine, before Jesus fed thousands with a few fish and loaves of bread, before Jesus healed the lame and caused the blind to see, before Jesus drove demons out, and ultimately before Jesus would go to the cross on behalf of man and die in our place, two things had to happen, his baptism and his temptation. And just as Monsters University puts the relationship between Mike and Sully into perspective as you then watch Monsters, Inc., what I want to suggest to you this morning is that Jesus' baptism and temptation help set the scene for the rest of his public ministry. Last week, we looked at preparing the way. This morning, we are going to look at preparing the way the man. The title of this morning's message is From the River to the Desert. From the River to the Desert. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, and it came to pass in those days. Those days is speaking up the days of verse 1 through 8, the days where John the Baptist was in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. So as John is in the wilderness baptizing, Jesus, uh, Jesus comes onto the scene. And Jesus comes to John and he requests that John baptizes him. You know, before we even dive into the exegesis and the interpretation of this text, I want to acknowledge that the idea of Jesus' baptism raises a lot of questions. You know, we know baptism as identifying with Jesus. So if we identify with Jesus through baptism, why would the one we identify with need to be baptized? Not only that, but for those that are familiar with John's baptism, it's for the forgiveness of sins. And if Jesus is God and Jesus is sinless, why would he go to John to be baptized a baptism of repentance. You know, the funny thing is, John was asking him the exact same question. Mark doesn't give us a full view of what happens at Jesus' baptism, but I'm going to go back to Matthew chapter 3 and try to fill in some of the gaps for you. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, and you come to me. Understand that the gospel 
of John tells us that when Jesus first came to John the Baptist in the wilderness, John did not necessarily know that Jesus was the Messiah. So as Jesus says, hey, man, I need to be baptized by you, it's, it's not an acknowledgement of Jesus as Messiah yet, but rather in Luke one thirty six, we learn that Jesus and John are cousins. When Mary, Jesus' mother, was pregnant with him, John's mother Elizabeth was also pregnant, and they were born six months apart. So growing up together, no doubt John the Baptist would have been watching Jesus' life. And he would have seen this child Jesus and see the righteousness that Jesus had. He would have seen that Jesus never got angry, that Jesus never sinned, that Jesus never backtalked to his mom. So as Jesus comes emerging out of the wilderness to John and says, will you baptize me? John is overwhelmed and he is appalled saying, listen, man, cousin, I've seen you grow up. If anybody needs to be baptized, it's you need to be baptizing me because of your superior righteousness. But then as you continue in Matthew's account, Jesus answers both John and us. In verse 15 of Matthew chapter 3, Jesus says to John, suffer it to be so now, or allow this to happen. For thus it is becoming us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus reveals in verse verse 15 of Matthew 3 that the purpose of his baptism was to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus's baptism was him identifying with the sinners he came to save. At Jesus's baptism, Jesus neither repents nor confesses because he had no sin. First John 3, 5 says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Before we could identify with Jesus, Jesus had to identify with us. Jesus came, according to Isaiah 53, to be counted among the rebels. Jesus' baptism is an act of humility. At Jesus' baptism, what Jesus is doing is consenting to be counted as if he were a sinner along with everyone else. So that then he could die a sinner's death on the cross in our place. Jesus was baptized into our sins in the Jordan. So that we might be baptized into his righteousness by faith. What a thought that is, that God himself came to earth, but not only came to earth and coming to earth, he took on human flesh. God took on human flesh, and not only did he take on human flesh, but as he comes, he goes to the Jordan River to identify with sinful man. Before a holy God, without Christ, We stand guilty and condemned. But because Christ came and took on flesh and identified with sinful man and then ultimately died on the cross, in Christ there is forgiveness. In Christ there is redemption. In Christ there is reconciliation back to the Father. There's freedom. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin 
speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Christ, you are clothed with Christ's righteousness. When you put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. The Bible says that when God looks at us, when we stand before God, no longer does he see us for our sin. But now clothed in Jesus' righteousness, when God looks at us and we stand before him, he sees his son. So John baptized Jesus in the Jordan in order that Jesus may identify with sinful men. And look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The gospel writer Mark uses a much stronger Word. He uses much stronger language to express the parting of heaven. Matthew and Luke, when they tell of Jesus' baptism, they use a word that translates to the heavens opened. But the word that John or that Mark uses here in his gospel translates to torn apart. That the heavens were torn apart. The prophet Isaiah says to God in chapter 64, Oh, that you would burst from heaven and come down. You know, often we use the phrase that all hell broke loose. But what Mark is saying here is that at the inauguration of Jesus' public ministry, as Jesus identified with sinners and he came up out of the water, that all heaven broke loose as the heavens were torn apart. Listen, if that's not enough to fire you up and make you shout, one commentator Noted how at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the heavens tore apart. But at the end of Jesus' ministry, the temple veil tore in two. The temple veil was the curtain that separated man from God. It was symbolic of, of man not being able to come to God. But as Jesus breathed his last breath on earth, the temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Listen, as Jesus is baptized, the heavens are torn apart, and God comes to man. But when Jesus dies on the cross, the temple veil is torn apart so that man could go to God. The heavens part, and the Spirit descends. Keep in mind that this was not the first time that the Holy Spirit was coming on Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit was on Jesus even before he was born. The Holy Spirit is what conceived Jesus Christ out of his virgin mother, Mary. But rather, at Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descending like a dove was symbolic of a fresh anointing for Jesus' public ministry. That now, in full humanity, he would be empowered through the Holy Spirit to do what only God could do. In Philippians, Paul tells us that in coming to earth as the servant 
king. Jesus made himself of no reputation and came in the likeness of men. That during Jesus' public ministry, though still fully God, Jesus laid aside some of his heavenly privileges. Jesus laid aside some of his power, and Jesus fully relied on the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.38 tells us, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So as the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, Jesus is anointed, and Jesus is empowered to now begin his public ministry. The heavens part, the Spirit descends, and the Father affirms. Verse 11, verse 11 says, there came a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus' baptism pleased God the Father. Another thing about Jesus' baptism is that this is a point in Scripture where the fullness of the Trinity is revealed to us. At Jesus' baptism, you have God the Son being baptized. You have the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit coming down on Jesus. And then you have God the Father proclaiming, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well Please, listen, if there's any questions about the validity of Jesus' baptism, if there's any questions uh, in our mind or in John's mind about why in the world would you need to be baptized, all those questions are now thrown out the window as as God the Father expresses pleasure in Jesus' obedience. Can I remind you that just as God the Father was pleased with Jesus identifying with sinners. God is pleased when sinners identify with Jesus. What a thought that I can please, I can bring pleasure to the creator of the heavens and the universe. Unworthy, undeserving, nothing really to offer, but simply by expressing my faith in the finished work of Christ, that I can please God, the creator, that I can please the holy God. Why is the father pleased with the son? What was it about Jesus' baptism that brought the father pleasure? The father was pleased by Jesus' baptism because by submitting to John's baptism in the present, Jesus was committing himself to the cross in the future. At his baptism, Jesus, in obedience, said to the father, I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to go to the cross. Jesus knew that His baptism was a representation of his death on the cross and then his resurrection as he came out of the water. And he accepted it without reservations. The main emphasis of the Father's affirmation is the unique sonship of Christ. This 
declaration of the Father's love for His Son cannot and should not be overlooked. Understand that no prophet ever heard words like this. No man or child of God never heard words like this. Abraham was a friend. Moses was a servant. Aaron was a chosen one. David was a man after God's own heart. But Jesus was his beloved son. Jesus' baptism was the sign of the beginning of his public ministry. As one commentator said, it was a moment of decision. As at his baptism, he committed to the cross. It was a moment of identification as he identifies with sinful man to then be able to die for the sins of the world. It was a moment of approval as the father looks down at his son and affirms him. And it was a moment of equipping as Jesus received a fresh anointing from the Holy Spirit. Now being equipped through the Spirit's anointing and affirmed by God, the Father, Jesus moves from the river Jordan to the desert. In verses 9 through 11, there is a declaration of sonship. But then in verses 12 through 13, there is a declaration of war. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Immediately, the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. After Jesus has this mountaintop experience in the Jordan, the Spirit then immediately drives him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. As we look at Jesus' temptation, again, some questions begin to arise in our minds. If Jesus is God, could Jesus sin? Why did Jesus need to be tempted to begin with? And the answer simply is no. Jesus could not have sinned. In Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, assumes human nature. Nature does not act. Persons do. Jesus was still God, the Son. In other words, to believe that Jesus could sin is to believe that God could sin. However, I want you to understand that sinlessness or the ability to even sin does not lower the force of temptation that Jesus faced. It's not as if Jesus went into the desert and laid out on a rock and took in the sun rays and was sipping Kool-Aid and lemonade as Satan is trying to attack him. Jesus' temptation was grueling. It was like nothing that we could ever imagine. Jesus' temptation was so intense that verse 13 tells us that Jesus had angels ministering to him in the midst of his temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. When we give into temptation, we actually never feel temptation's full power. But Jesus, to be tempted yet 
sinless meant that he knows the full extent of temptation. Think of it this way. If you go to a circus and there's a strong man at that circus and he takes a bar and he begins to bend that bar and he gets to a point where the bar breaks. He then grabs another bar and he begins to bend this bar as well. And he gets to the point where the last bar broke, but the bar just begins to bend. And it begins to bend and bend, and it bends, but it does not break. The question we have to ask is, which bar resisted more pressure? Well, it's the bar that bent, but never broke. And it's the same with Jesus' temptation. So if Jesus could not sin, why was he tempted? Well, I'm glad you asked. The main reason the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan was to declare war. To declare war. You know, often spiritual highs precede spiritual battles. Can I warn you that often when God starts blessing, the devil starts messing. You know, oftentimes it's in these moments where we're striving to be godly, where we're striving to follow God's will for our life and do the right thing, that it seems like we begin to get attacked from every side. And Satan tries his best to get us to take our eyes off the cross, to take our eyes off of Jesus. And while that is true, while I look at Jesus' temptation, it's not that Satan came to Jesus after this baptism and tried to trip Jesus up. But rather, Jesus fully empowered and anointed with the Spirit confronts Satan. Jesus gets filled up. Jesus has this affirmation from the Father, and then Jesus goes straight to war. Jesus' temptation was no accidental encounter. Jesus' temptation was not Satan coming to Jesus to try to make him stumble. It was not a chance meeting, but rather it was a divine appointment scheduled by the Father and implemented by the Spirit. Immediately after his baptism, the Spirit compelled Jesus to confront Satan and take the first step in overcoming his kingdom. Jesus' wilderness temptation established him as the true and better Adam. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the first Adam became a living being. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Adam was tempted in a garden. And sinned. And now Jesus is tempted in the desert and overcomes and assures to us his power over sin and proves to us that he is the Messiah, that he is the way of redemption. Mark, along with all the other gospel writers, tell us that Jesus was tempted for 40 days. As we Look at Jesus' battle with Satan in the wilderness. We are reminded of Israel's wilderness wandering for 40 years. For 40 years in the wilderness, Israel grumbled. For 40 years, Israel complained. For 40 years, Israel failed to trust God. 
But for 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus trusted the Father. For 40 days, Jesus followed the Spirit. For 40 days, Jesus did not grumble. Jesus did not complain. But rather, he confronted evil. In the wilderness, Jesus turned, or in the wilderness, Israel turned their back on God. But in the wilderness, Jesus turned back the enemy. In the wilderness, Israel gave in to sin. But in the wilderness, Jesus overcame sin. In Jesus' unwavering faithfulness in the wilderness, we see a Messiah that has not only received the sign of his Father's unquestioning approval, but we also find how he perfectly lives it out. The reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. In a sense, Jesus' wilderness temptation is the first offensive in this mission. 1 John 3, 8 says, He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. One could say that Jesus' temptation was a preview of the coming attraction. In the wilderness, Jesus proved that he was the Son of God by overcoming the temptations of Satan. And in doing so, foreshadowing a day when ultimately he would defeat Satan and sin and redeem mankind through his death, burial, and resurrection. As we look at our text this morning, there are two things quickly I want to exhort you and challenge you with. The first is to seek sonship. Seek sonship. Listen, it is only through the person and work of Christ that you can be reconciled or you can be made right with a holy God. First John 3 1 says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we shall be called children of God. Ephesians 5.1 says, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Listen, in Christ, you are given the opportunity to be called a child of God. In Christ, no matter your past, you are offered freedom, no Matter your past, you're offered forgiveness and salvation. And then second, after being declared children of God, declare war. Declare war. Listen, the Christian life is a battlefield. I've said it before that the church is not a cruise ship, but the church is a battleship. And if the church is a battleship and the church is comprised of Christians, that means that the Christians on this battleship are the sailors who are in charge of taking the charge. So I love the idea that Jesus went to Satan. As I look at Jesus' temptation, I am challenged to not just live my Christian life passively and always on the defense, but rather to be actively taking battle to Satan. You know, we can take battle to Satan in many ways. We declare war on Satan by sharing 
the gospel, by making heaven crowded, by snatching people from his grasp. We declare war on Satan by finding our hope, by finding our joy and our peace in Christ alone. We declare war on Satan by living a life that honors and living a life of obedience, a life that glorifies God. So we declare war on Satan the exact same way that Jesus did through the power of the Holy Spirit and with the Word of God. When it comes to Satan, we must be careful to not underestimate his power. First Peter 5.8 tells us to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. But at the same time, we must also be careful to not overestimate Satan's power. Listen, Satan is not God. Christ has already declared you victorious. The Messiah has come, all heaven has broke loose. You know, at the beginning, I talked to you about the power of a prequel. And as we look at this prequel to Jesus's public ministry, before Jesus even performs a single miracle, we are compelled to bow in submission. Before he even starts his public ministry, we look at Jesus's baptism and temptation and see that he is the son of God and God the son. We see in his affirmation by the father and his power over sin that he is the Messiah, that he is the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus's baptism identified himself with sinners and foreshadowed his provision for sin. Jesus's temptation identified himself with God and proved his power over sin. His baptism was a declaration of sonship. His temptation, a declaration of war. At the river, Jesus identified with sinners. In the desert, he identified as God. At the river, Jesus was baptized into sin. In the desert, Jesus claimed victory over sin. And on the cross, he defeated sin so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be restored, you could be reconciled and come back into a perfect relationship with a holy and loving Father. Every head bow and eyes closed. Listen, if you are here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in Christ alone. I want to plead with you to make the day the day that you do so. If that's you here this morning and you say, I've never put my faith in Christ, or I'd like to know more about putting my faith in Christ, I want you to just slip your hand up real quick. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I just want to pray for you, and I want to help you and show you what the Bible says about knowing you can have eternal life. If that's you, just slip your hand up. Man, all right, let's pray. Dear Lord, again, we thank you for this day, this time you've given us, Lord. I pray that as we leave here this morning, Lord, that we would, first knowing that we are sons and children of God, leave here declaring war on Satan, that we would go to our communities and our jobs and our neighborhoods, Lord, and we would be a lighthouse of the goodness of God, Lord. 
Lord, I pray you would just continue to challenge us and convict us. I pray that throughout the rest of the worship time that we would glorify you and exalt Christ. We love you and thank you for all you do. In Christ's name, amen. All right, and we're going to, as we respond, you can come forward and pray. You can pray in your seats. Or we're going to sing together one more time, only a holy God, only a holy God.